So for the last few weeks here at Grace, we've been in a series of messages called Taboo, right? Where we're talking about some of the topics that the church typically doesn't talk about. And these are topics that you have given me to speak about. How, how are you liking this series so far? Is it really helping for you guys? Is it resonating? Good. I, I'm, I'm really hoping so. You know, just so you know, um, I've, I'm continuing to instruct all of my ushers uh, before services start to check, each, check carefully every one of your bags as you come through to make sure no projectiles are in there. They could perhaps reach the stage during one of my messages, you know, because they just never know, you know, with some of these topics I'm getting on here. I've, those things kind of go through a pastor's mind these days, you know. But my, seriously, my hope is through this series that you will be able to really wrestle with some difficult, sensitive topics that are in our culture today that you're hearing about in the world and in the news all the time, but you don't hear nearly enough in the church, and we don't necessarily always hear God's perspective on some of these things. And so as we're digging into these topics, we're really wanting to dig into Scripture and to understand what God has to say to us and where the Scripture is clear that we would be able to understand that, but in the places even where it's not clear... We would be able to form, use that what is clear as a foundation for, what we're, for where we go with the parts that aren't clear. So this morning, just to give you a heads up, we're going to be talking about the topic of abuse. Um, so parents who might ha- happen to have young kids in the room, uh, you might want to think about that. I'm not going to be showing anything disturbing on the screen, but um, if you have a preteen in the room and you might think it's a uh, good idea to have them in here, just know that you might have some questions that you weren't expecting coming at you on the car ride home this morning that uh, you might want to be thinking about. I actually feel like, though, this topic of abuse is, so, is one that we should always be addressing with our kids, even our young kids uh, at home. And maybe perhaps if you are a parent here today, as a result of this conversation, you would not only be listening with how you might be processing it, but how you might in turn help your kids process this as well. So think about that this morning as we start. Now, I thought I'd start this morning by sharing with you a story uh, that I have just had uh, in my own life here in the last month that I think might be relevant and impact you today as well. About a month ago, before I went on vacation, I ran into someone here in town that, who I know kind of vaguely a little bit, and she asked, and when she saw me, her eyes kind of lit up, and she said, hey, Dave, could I just have a few minutes of your time? I have a story I need to share with you. So I said, sure, and she started telling me, she said, you probably remember my daughter, you know, she got married just a few years ago. And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I do remember that. And she said, um, I have something I need to tell you about my daughter. And she said, you don't know this, but after they were married for a little while, one night our daughter came home to the house and talked with my husband and I about what she was going through. And she said that for months she had been de- dealing with physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. From her new husband. I said, wow. I said, how did you process that? And she said, well, that's the thing. She said, you know, when, when she, when, I'm just going to call her for the sake of this story today. I'm going to call her name Janice. When Janice shared with us uh, what was going on, she said, my husband really struggled with believing this. Because she knows the guy. She, he's been playing basketball with him. They, he, he said, you know, he's kind of a, he's really a stand-up guy. I've never seen anything that feels off to me about him. He told his daughter, and he said, you know, I, he even said to her, so I, you know, I've never seen any marks. I've never seen any signs of abuse. And so he was really kind of struggling, but he was kind of questioning what his daughter was saying in that moment. As that conversation ended up, mom and dad just encouraged Janice to go and talk to their pastor and share with him and see if what was going on, see if maybe he could be of help. 
And Janice did a very courageous thing. Not only had she talked to her mom and dad, but she decided to go and talk to this pastor about what she was going through. And the pastor responded to her, Honey, it sounds like you just need to work a little bit harder at learning how to love your husband. And then he made a point of bringing out how God hates divorce. And he sent her back to the hell she was living in for a few more months. But there was something in mom that couldn't let this go. There was something in mom that said, I don't, I, I can't just let this go. So there's something here to this. I need to do something. But she didn't know what to do. I mean, what, what could she do? I mean, what do you do in a situation like that when someone shares that kind of news with you? How, she thought, how could I actually help Janice? So she did what many of us do when we're confused and we don't know what to do. She turned to Google. She opened up her search browser and she typed in abuse and a few other things. And believe it or not, my message that, came, that uh, popped up that I gave here at Grace a few years ago on abuse. And she listened to it. And she said, Dave, the thing that struck me the most was when I heard that message, there was one point that you made very clear. You said, if you're in a situation where there's abuse going on in your home, there's no question what you're to do. You're to get out. Now. Period. I made that very clear. Whether it's your spouse is abusing you or is abusing your, your children, doesn't matter. You get out. The relationship, the marriage is secondary. You protect yourself and you protect your kids. Because in that moment, that, that, that spouse um, is not upholding his or her marriage vows. And they need help. There is no real marriage until there is genuine repentance and trust again. That message, years later, just this spring, gave that mom the courage, the guts, to go to daughter Janice's house pick her and her young daughter, granddaughter up and get them out of the house and get them to safety. And it was scary. It was not an easy situation for her to be in. Days later, when the police arrived at mom and dad's house to talk to Janice and ask what had been going on, she had the courage to tell the police officer what was happening. And it was in that moment that she learned that she hadn't been the only victim, that there were actually several women here in town who had been victims of this guy. And as a result of her final testimony, this man was arrested and charged just last month here in town with several counts of sexual and aggravated assault of women, spanning back seven years. Janice is still terrified, though, to this day. Because her husband has been released now on bond and she's been told by attorneys that the trial is likely another two years away still. So she's in hiding for two more years, but she's holding on to a chapter in the book of Psalms that has meant more to her than anything else uh, during this season. It's Psalm 37. A few verses that are especially meaningful to her out of Psalm 37 or verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6, where it talks about not worrying about the wicked and those who do wrong, because sooner or later, like grass, they're going to fade away, no matter how powerful they are. Sooner or later, God will see to justice. And in those verses, it also speaks to her heart and reminds her to trust God 
Because God will be a source of help and a source of justice in situations even like these. Now, why do you think, might think, am I telling you this story as we start this message today? Because even in America, even in Oro Valley in 2019, abuse is still all around us. It can even be happening in the house right next door. We don't like to think about it. But abuse is around us all the time, every single day. Abuse of women and men, abuse of children, abuse of the elderly. There's abuse that is physical, emotional, and spiritual in nature, sexual in nature. Everything from the uh, aggressive bullying at school that can sometimes get out of hand to rape on a college campus, to the spiritual or authority abuse of people in positions of power taking advantage of others. For so long in America, abuse has been seen as a huge taboo topic. Millions have suffered in silence and in fear in this country for years. And they were even threatened and shamed or even discredited for speaking up. In the words of Christian Bible teacher Beth Moore, who was a victim of abuse herself as a child, she recently just said this. She said, by and large, the naive couldn't fathom it, the knowledgeable wouldn't risk it, the perpetrators were good at it, and the victims were blamed and shamed for it. Fifteen years ago in this country, we started thinking that abuse was a Catholic church problem, right? as news headlines just continue to flood us over and over again about boys and girls and even young seminary students being sexually abused by people in positions of power. But now, thanks to the Me Too movement, the tide is turning, and we see that this just isn't a Catholic church problem. It's a broken and sinful world problem. We have seen in the last year and a half hundreds of people in positions of power in Hollywood, in Washington, D.C., And even, unfortunately, in churches all around the country being fired and even arrested and charged for long-term sexual abuse of other people. A few days ago, just a few days ago, America's largest Protestant denomination decided, this is the Southern Baptists, decided that they would start removing churches from the Southern Baptist Convention who were complicit in covering up abuse rather than helping victims and getting them the justice that they need. Because it had been happening for far too long, even among them. Even still, guys, this problem is vast. And it feeds on silence. I need you to hear that. It feeds on silence. The government, our government now reports that someone still is physically abused by an intimate partner every three seconds in the United States. Most victims of domestic violence refuse to go to the hospital, yet I have heard uh, stories where uh, as many as one out of ten people who are in emergency rooms today in this country are victims of domestic violence. Out of every 1,000 rapes in our country today, only 230 of them ever get reported to police. Only 46 are arrested, and only five ever go to jail. That's today. 2019. Every day, five children die from physical abuse in our country. 
And one in ten elderly experienced abuse, and that abuse is almost never reported. Get this one. One out of every four men, oh, one out of every four women, and one out of every seven men in this country have been sexually abused as children. And 60% of them never told an adult about it. Think about that. In a room just like this one today, I could go around this room and I could start counting off every four women, and the fourth one is likely to have been a victim of abuse. And I can count off one out of every seven men in this room. And that story would still be true, most likely. You see, I'm not sharing these things to just sensationalize. These aren't just numbers. These aren't just facts. These are real people among us, even here at Grace. People who suffer and sometimes continue to suffer in silence. Because it's still taboo to get involved when we, when we suspect something is wrong or we, it, we sometimes think it's taboo to even talk with victims after the fact about the trauma that they have experienced or still are experiencing even after the, after the abuse has stopped. In fact, I bet you know people, don't you? I bet you know people today who have suffered from abuse but don't know how to heal from it. They've just stuffed it. They've pretended that it never happened because they don't know what else to do. And you don't know what to do. And so we just don't speak about it. Or perhaps you know people today who are being abused. Or maybe you've noticed some things that just seem a little bit off in their lives. But you've not gotten involved. You've thought to yourself... It could, it could be anything. I'm sure it's nothing. It's none of my business. I need to just butt out. You know, I doubt when you guys gave me the topics for this series, I doubt any of you who gave me this topic of abuse, you were giving me this topic because you were confused or you were wanting to know what God's view or God's perspective was on abuse, right? I'm sure that wasn't something you were staying up at night pondering, trying to figure out, hmm, I wonder what God thinks about abuse. But the reason, guys, this is a taboo topic And the reason why I agree that it is so important to address this today is because the taboo aspect of this is, what do we do? Do we butt in? Do we ask the difficult questions? Or do we just say, I'm sure it's nothing, and we just rationalize it away? Abuse is as old as time itself. And people have been handling abuse situations in all the wrong ways for all that time also. We even see it in the Bible. The Bible speaks in many places of stories of abuse. And the one thing I love about Scripture is it doesn't try to sugarcoat or dance around the issues. I mean, it tells you exactly what happened and it exposes the people involved, warts and all, in these situations. And I like that about Scripture because it reminds us that the mess in our lives um, is... Sometimes we we think it's abnormal, but it's not. So this morning, I'd like for us to look at just one of those stories. It's a story that you actually find in 2 Samuel chapter 13 about the abuse of a woman named Tamar. So if you have your Bibles today, I encourage you to follow along with me. Maybe you want to mark some places and come back and read more of this story later. Um, If you don't have your paper Bibles with you, but you have your smartphone or tablet, just go to mygrace.church and click on the Messages tab there. And um, you can follow along with the scripture there 
as well. But what we're going to see today is that this, that whenever we know or suspect that abuse is going on, this is what I want us to understand today. Doing nothing is never a good option. Silence never stops abuse. Never has, and it never will. It's something that we all know instinctively makes sense, right? But it's something that many of us easily fall into when we're unsure or we're lacking confidence in what to do in a situation. So let's see how the people of Scripture handled this situation with Tamar. 2 Samuel chapter 13, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Hmm, we can already see the plot thickening, right? Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother Shemaiah. One day Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of a king... Looked so dejected morning after morning. So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, you might think that Jonadab would look at him and like, dude, seriously? But that isn't the response that he had. Now, this, keep in mind, this is the king's family. David is the king of Israel at this time. And Amnon, who is the eldest son, and at this time the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, is no doubt used to getting whatever he wanted as a young man, right? And he had seen dad with multiple women over the years, and he knew the result of that is he had multiple half-brothers and sisters all around him, including Tamar. Now, the story says that Amnon was in love with her, right? Actually, it wasn't love. It was more like lust or infatuation. Because, hear this, true love is never self-gratifying. It's self-sacrificing. It puts the desires of the other person first. But his lust in this moment is so strong that he doesn't even struggle with the fact that what he wants is immoral and illegal. <laughs> now, Cousin Amnon decides that he's going to help uh, Amnon get what he wants. And so, and he gives this, puts this idea in Amnon's head to go to his dad, David, and convince David to get his half-sister, Tamar, to come to the house and to prepare a meal for him because he's going to pretend to be sick in this moment when dad comes over and when, Am, when Tamar comes over. And he, she can take care of him in this moment. Well, let's see how this story goes. Verse 8. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him, but when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants, so they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him, but as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things are not done in Israel. 
Where can I go in my shame? Where can I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. Can you hear the desperation in this young woman's voice in this moment as this is happening? You know, in our, in our date rape culture today in America, we have learned that no means no, right? To continue when that word is, after that word is used is a crime. But in verse 12, Tamar uses that word three times. Tamar even tries to appeal to this man's sense of reason because she knows that his decision is going to destroy both of their lives. It's going to destroy his reputation, but beyond that, it's going to destroy her entire life. Her life is going to be ruined if he does this. Let's look at how this story continues in verse 14. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. See, in this part of the story that we see, we see through Amnon's so-called love of his half-sister. It shows its true colors as after the rape, this love turns into hate and repulsion. Of her. Now, you may be hearing this part of the story and you may be thinking to yourself, what is up with Tamar? Why in the world, is, after this has happened, is she begging him to not let her go? I mean, she's been assaulted. Why wouldn't she want to run? But please understand, in this moment, and particularly in that culture, that women who had sex outside of marriage for any reason, even if they were raped, were seen as damaged goods. And she knew that. She knew that as a result of what had just happened, no one would ever marry her. She, in that moment, Amnon had not only stolen her virginity, but he had stolen her life. Do you understand that? He had stolen her future. He had stolen her ability to have a husband, to have children, to have a family of her own. In a moment of fear and desperation, she wanted nothing more than just to stay with her abuser. And believe it or not, that's not too uncommon even today. So this beautiful young woman, this princess, this daughter of the king has been abused. And she is so filled with shame that she tears her princess robes and she throws ashes on her head as a sign of death and mourning. I want to encourage you for just a moment. Whether you're a man or a woman here in the audience today, could you put yourself in her shoes for just a moment? For just a moment. If that horrible set of circumstances had happened to you, what would you do? 
Who would you turn to in your life? Would you tell someone? Or would you be so paralyzed with fear of such a powerful person that you would just stay silent? You might say, oh, Dave, absolutely. I'd tell somebody. But are you sure? You know, trauma and abuse attacks every part of us. It damages not only our bodies, it attacks our very souls. And if you are a victim of abuse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Abusers can get us to believe lies about ourselves to keep the abuse going year after year after year sometimes. That's why abuse so oftentimes is left unchecked as long as it does. Victims lose a lot in these situations. They not only lose um, their confidence at times, but they lose their voice as well. And that's why whenever we suspect something or someone says something to us that might sound like abuse, even though it might sound a little bit off, it may sound a little bit sketchy or far-fetched, in that moment when we have heard that story, we can't not do something. We can't. Our faith prohibits us from keeping that silent. So what happens to Tamar in this story? Who, who helps her? Let's look at verse 20. It says, Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Let's process this for a moment. What does dear brother Absalom do for his sister in this moment? Does he help her? Verse 20, what we see is he actually makes the problems worse. He minimizes what she's gone through. He's like, don't worry about it, sis. Just suck it up. Just let's go. Just let's move on from this situation. Let's not even really talk about this again. He encourages her to not speak up, to just keep it quiet. I mean, after all, he is your brother. (laughs) So let's just keep this between us and the family. It's maintaining appearances before justice. And it's maintaining this image that everything is okay. If someone confides in us and we question them or we encourage them ever to keep it quiet, that kind of thing can be so damaging to that person. It can cause them to be afraid to ever trust another person again and to live in that abuse for years to come. You know, when someone comes to you or I to disclose something like this, they are demonstrating immense courage in that moment. And our job as followers of Jesus is to listen well to what they're saying. At times, their stories may not make a whole lot of sense. I have heard a number of these stories myself from children, adults, even the elderly at times. At times... As they're telling their stories, they may doubt or even blame themselves in those moments. 
And you may think, this is crazy. I don't even see how this can be possible. But believe it or not, that kind of behavior is normal for someone who has gone through abuse. If someone comes to you and they're an adult and they're sharing something like this, where you're catching a whiff of, of abuse in, this, in their story, we can affirm them and we can help them think about who they can talk to, who they can actually go to to get the help that they need. It isn't our responsibility in that moment to try to figure out if what they're telling us is true or not. That's not our job. Our job is to point them to someone who can listen and who can give them the help that they need. Our job also in those moments isn't to pressure them, to try to get them, force them to talk to someone about it. But to just reassure them that we will walk this road with them every step of the way from this point forward. And they will never have to walk this road alone again. And when they're ready, we will be there with them to help them tell their story. Let me also be clear and bold and say this this morning. If you ever suspect, if you ever have a reasonable suspicion that there is a child who is involved in abuse, the answer to what you're to do in that situation, in my opinion, is abundantly clear. You pick up the phone and you call. If you have any suspicion, you always, you always err on the side of caution and you report it, period. The person who Tamar thought loved her the most and that she could trust the most didn't help her. He thought what he was doing was best, but in that moment he hushed her and he did nothing more than just compound her pain and even his as her brother. But let's think about David for a moment here in this story. What did, what did David do? How did David help Tamar? Well, he gets angry, right? <laughs> he gets really angry. That's it. He gets angry and he does nothing. Think about this. He is the most powerful person around at that time. He is the king of Israel. And in that moment, all he can do is get angry. He does nothing to ensure justice for his own daughter. Perhaps, and you, and you, when, I was, when I was reading this scripture and trying to think about it, I was asking myself, why? Why in the world would a father not protect his own daughter? Some of the thoughts I've had about this as I try to get in David's head are this. Maybe he thought that if he said something, that it looked really bad for him. I mean, after all, he was the one who sent Tamar there to that house and left her there, right? What would people think? What would people say if they knew that he was complicit in this somehow or if they assumed he was? I mean, he, David, if you look, if you have your paper Bibles in front of you, you start, or, well, digital Bibles too, I guess it works. If you start flipping the, to the chapter or two before this story, you know, you know the story you see? It's the story of David with Bathsheba and Uriah. So David's had plenty of scandal in his life in this moment, and he's probably thinking, all I need to do is just kind of keep me and my family out of scandal for a little while. I think it's just best that I just fume about this and not say anything else. Besides, he probably thought, the deed's already done. I can't take it back. So why not just keep it quiet? Right? So David is passive. And he does nothing to help Tamar. We, we, don't, even, we don't even see that he tries to comfort his daughter in this. But his passivity, David's passivity comes back to haunt him. Did you know that? Because two years later, the 
anger and animosity that had been stirring in Absalom for two years finally came on court. And Amnon is actually killed by half-brother Absalom. That anger that had been buried, that they thought could just make, go, make it go away, it hadn't gone away. It had just got built and built and built over two years' time. So, once again, we see from the, from the horrible story of Scripture, the stories that we don't like to talk about in Scripture, that silence solves nothing. In fact, silence is deadly. If David had done something, perhaps both of his sons would have lived another day. But as a result, what we see is that not only does Amnon die, but Absalom dies shortly after that. Two lives, two more lives needlessly lost as a result of this mess continuing. In verse 20, we see this, that Tamar lived the rest of her life alone. It says, it actually says in the New Living Translation, she lived the life of a desolate woman. There's no Hollywood ending to this story. There's no happily ever after, unfortunately, to this one. It says that she lived in Amnon's house, and Tamar's name is never spoken of again in Scripture. When Absalom himself is killed in chapter 18 of this book, it means that she is likely left all alone for the rest of her life with no one to love or to care for her. Friends, I know this is heavy, and I'm sure you're probably feeling the weight of this message this morning as we look at the nastiness of a story like this. But I'm saying all this because there is a hope to this, and that is this. These stories do not have to end this way. They don't. Abuse is a terrible tragedy in the lives it affects. So whenever we know or we suspect that abuse is going on, may you and I remember from this day forward that doing nothing is never a good option. Silence never stops abuse. It only allows it to continue. If you suspect that someone is being abused today... Maybe you've got a coworker or a friend. Maybe there's just been something that just seems a little bit off and it's been, you've had that little red flag glow up inside of your head more than once and you thought, I don't know what to do about this. I want to encourage you. Before you leave today at Guest Services Center, we have some materials out there about one of them is to help someone who knows someone who they suspect is being abused and the other is for the victim themselves. I encourage you to grab either or both of these books and take them with you. Have, be courage, courageous enough to just open the door a crack and have that conversation. It may end up being absolutely nothing. You may just end up getting a really good laugh out of it. And if so, praise God for that. But would you please, as a follower of Jesus, who is called to be administers of justice with those who are suffering around you, would you be courageous enough to speak up? And have the conversation. In those booklets, there is a little uh, sticker inside where they, where my contact information is there. And I don't care who it is or what the situation is like. You can know that at any time, you can put my name out there and say, Hey, give this guy a call. He would love to have a conversation with you about this. And see how he will be able to help you in this situation. And I promise you, I will.
There's one more thing I want to offer you this morning as we wrap up. Because I know that just as there may be people in this room who know people who are being abused, or maybe even perhaps, God forbid, someone in this room has been suffering with abuse, I also know even more so that there are people in this room who have been abused in the past. And you have not known what to do with that abuse in the months or years since. Your thought is, I don't know what to do other than just stuff it and pretend it didn't happen. But as we've talked about today, the silence never solves anything, does it? It just makes those problems continue to resurface in other areas of our lives. So I don't want to do a message like this this morning and not give you, as a victim of abuse, a resource that you can do something with. Particularly the women who are in the audience this morning. There's a, in, in just a few weeks, we're going to be starting another round of short-term groups here at Grace Community Church. These groups, we, they meet one night a week for six to eight, ten weeks at the time. And we talk about topics that are really relevant to what's going on in our lives today. And one of those, uh, one of those groups this, this round, starting on August 13th, will be a group called Mending the Soul. And this one will be specifically geared toward women because we have found that it's better for men to talk about this in separate groups and women to, from, from women. But in this, in this small group, you will be provided some of the best curriculum that is out there from a Christian perspective on how to deal with the physical, the emotional, the sexual abuse, the spiritual abuse, the neglect, whatever it is that you've gone through that you might recognize as abuse. I want to encourage you to sign up when this round of short-term group starts and just be willing to explore this topic and to see how you can find healing and not allow this abuse from your past to continue to haunt you and drag you down for the rest of your life. Because as a sister, sister in Christ, I know that is not God's plan for your life. You do not have to live the life of Tamar anymore. And if you are a guy who has struggled with abuse, I'm sorry I don't have a group for you starting on August 13th, but I am available and I will be at your disposal to talk with you at any time that you want. Let me wrap up this time this morning, because I know this has been a heavy topic, by sharing with you the story of one woman who has found healing from her abuse, particularly through going through mending the soul. Take a look at this woman's story. My first ministry that I volunteered in was a storyteller. And when those kids listened to me tell the story of the good news of God, at that moment in time, I want them to see such a big reflection of God. And that's what I should have saw from my parents, was a reflection of God. And that was all distorted. So now I am the storyteller at church. I was raised in a very religious home. We went to church every Sunday, Wednesday night prayer, my dad was well known throughout the community and everybody thought he was the perfect family man, perfect coach behind closed doors. My dad was an alcoholic. I remember one day I was maybe nine. He got mad and he unplugged the telephone wires and beat my mom. Me and my oldest brother ran going from house to house trying to get someone to call the police. He pulled my mama outdoors and all the neighbors came out and watched as he beat her. After that, my mom had many broken bones, and I never seen so much blood. I was molested at seven by my dad. Um, I remember telling my mom for the first time, and she said I was making it up, and he was just playing. I went to tell my aunt, to tell other family members, and they told me to be quiet about it. That was personal stuff that we shouldn't talk about. 
My dad was the first person who molested me, but it was raped by a friend of the family and other members of the family. I went through life in a lot of silence. I had a lot of anger and rage. Uh, one day I got my dad's shotgun and I went through the house and pointed it at all of them. And they joked, oh, crazy Shermaine. It wasn't the first time I had gotten a gun before while they were asleep and contemplated killing everyone in the house and then killing myself. I remember thinking that God couldn't love me or he was angry at me or that I was a child of Satan. We would have nights where I would be molested on a Saturday and my mom would be beaten on the same night till two or three in the morning. He put on his suit, he drove to church, cursing my mom out. But when the door opened to go in church, we were the perfect family. When I first entered high school, the effects of the abuse continued, the cutting and the suicidal thoughts. And I thought, what is the purpose of my life? As soon as I did a job, I saved my money. I went to college and I never went back home. I met my husband and I thought, okay, out of sight, out of mind. I'm in a whole nother city. It's over with, it's dealt with. But it wasn't dealt with. It rolled over into every relationship in my life, including my marriage. I had no self-worth. I did not know what intimacy was. I had no relationship with God. I believe that he sent the abuse upon me. I thought, well, I'll just have a baby, somebody to love. I had two miscarriages, and I thought that God was punishing me. We conceived again a few years later. My third daughter, Jordan, born premature at two pounds. My marriage just took a tumble, and a lot of things was broken that I thought a baby would help, and it did not. Uh, me and my husband ended up separated. We had signed our divorce papers, but we didn't submit them. And I don't know why. <laughs> I hit a rock bottom then. I wanted to just sleep my life away. I went into my doctor and it was the first time in my life that I told someone my story. And he said, you need help. And I ended up being admitted into a mental institution. I set in support groups in the facility. I had to sit in the AA group meetings, but there was no group or therapist for sexual abuse. I was in a pit of depression, and I had never seen a pit this dark and deep before in my life. And I looked up from that pit, and I saw God. He said to me he had been there the whole time, even throughout the abuse that he was there and that he needed to restore some things that were broken in my life. It was from there that I started to go to church and me and my husband got into couples counseling with a pastor. My husband didn't know the depths of my abuse. I shared with him then about the abuse and the pastor said that the effects of the abuse have caused problems in your marriage. It opened a door to our marriage from my husband's point of view. I found him being more sympathetic. God softened my heart and his heart, and we decided that we were going to work again on our marriage. We got into a house together. We had my son because my daughter was approaching the age that my abuse started. I started having flashbacks. I can remember telling her, make sure you sit still, close your legs, don't roll over. Even with her and her dad, I was very, very protective. I was robbing her of a healthy childhood because my childhood was so horrible. 
I got into the Bible study and, and I told a lady that I'm having trouble with my child. I can't seem to know how to parent. I'm overprotective. She can't spend a night with anyone. She said, I think you need to take this study that we offer here at the church called Mending the Soul. It was very intense and it was very hard. When it started to give a definition for everything I had experienced, I never heard of sexual abuse defined out the way it was defined out, or physical abuse, the emotional, the verbal, the spiritual abuse. Everything I experienced was trauma. And I was dealing with the effects of trauma. I was not crazy. I was just a child who endured severe trauma. And God not only restored my marriage, he restored my life through that ministry. I felt a weight lift off me and I finally felt free. Amen. May you and I be ministers of healing and grace to the broken around us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you've helped us to process through such a difficult topic today. Such a taboo topic in our culture. Lord, although many things have changed in the last couple years in the United States around abuse, there's a lot that still needs to be fixed. And Lord, as long as there's brokenness and sin in this world, there will always, unfortunately, be abuse. God, I pray that you would use each one of us to be ministers of reconciliation and healing to the brokenhearted. That you would give us the courage to speak up, to speak out, to help those who are hurting find the help that they need and deserve. To unpack the lies that they're feeling about themselves the brokenness, the dirtiness that they may feel, and to recognize that those are nothing more than lies. And Lord, may we help those who are broken around us see how beautiful they are in your sight, God, and in ours as well. In Jesus' name, amen.